we uh, open your word. Father, we pray that uh, through your Holy Spirit, you will speak to each of us, Lord. We, we each and every one depend upon you. And uh, Lord, times we put our own will up against yourself and we're pretty stubborn and uh, like to pretend that um, we're better than we are. Lord, um, speak to us today. And if there's anything in, uh, in the word today that applies to any one of us, Lord, uh, convict us that we might uh, grow in grace, uh, knowledge of yourself, and uh, live a life with you from the heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tim and David have uh, been going through in uh, this series the, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it, it's a very important passage of Scripture. It's a beautiful passage. There's so much teaching in it. Uh, as we approach the Gospels, I think it's always very important for us to realise the context of the Gospels. The Gospels are pre-Christian. Jesus is speaking to the Jews. And of course we extrapolate from that and, and have um, teaching for us as Christians. But as we read the Gospels, we must first of all recognise that this is the transition period between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And Jesus is there to fulfil the law that was given to the Jews so that it might then be extended out through to the Gentiles. So we need to keep it in that context. Secondly, no matter what t uh, passage in the Bible we go to, there's um, probably several ways of looking at it, but there's at least two ways of, of looking at a passage. There's the approach where we... Um, go into the passage and every tiny little detail of that particular verse we, we try and uh, bring it out and get the maximum benefit out of it and, and, and that's extremely valuable. Then there's the other approach, or that's like uh, looking at the individual trees in the forest, inspecting the bark, inspecting the, the leaves, looking at the fruit, seeing if the tree has any, any disease. The other approach is to look at the forest uh, see the big picture and both of these approaches I, I think are important but we can look at one and, and not see the other <laughs> so uh, times we need to make a point of looking at both and uh, as I approach the message today I'd like to very quickly summarize the first 20 verses that have already been covered in a, uh, a sort of a paraphrase looking at the bigger picture because as I see it those first 20 verses are not teaching the first 20 verses are Jesus introduction Jesus was a master of human relationships he was a, an orator and an orator makes contact with his people before he gets into the nitty-gritty of what he's got to say I think of high school where we did Julius Caesar and Shakespeare and Mark Antony says, Friends, Romans, country, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. He gets the people with him and then he starts <laughs> a completely different area. So let's introduce in this way. It's not surprising in this dialogue um, that we see Jesus and his heart. Uh, 
it's not surprising, he knows the heart of the people who are sitting in front of him. There's, there's a multitude. He's been right through Galilee, teaching, healing. His fame has grown so much that people now are coming from a whole length and breadth of Israel and from the ten cities on the other side of the Jordan River and there's this great multitude. So he goes up on the hill and he sits down to teach them. And uh, he knows our hearts. He knew their hearts. He knew what excited them. He knew what hurt them. And he started his message, as we realise, with the Beatitudes. And I want to put a slightly different slant on them, where effectively he said, I know that some of you folk are, are poor and dejected and you can't seem to get out of the pit that you're in. I, I know that some of you are mourning and it really, really hurts. I know that some of you are looking for justice and you never seem to get it. And uh, I can see some people nodding their heads. I know that some of you are hungering and thirsting after righteousness and sometimes you wonder just what is righteousness when you look at what's going on around you. There are those of you who are trying to keep the peace in your home and in your village but even though you don't seem to be getting anywhere. And there are others who are persecuted and mocked because they're trying to keep my word, the word of God. And um, I, I feel with you. But I want to tell you that God hasn't deserted you. <laughs> that as you continue and walk with the Lord, you will be blessed. And he had the people with him. He spoke to them. He made contact with them so that as he taught, they listened to him. And, and he continues in this way. Um, it's as, he goes on, to, as, it's as though Jesus said to them, you are God's people. You are the people that God selected and developed years and years ago to give his word to. And you are the light upon the hill that God wants to shine out for the sake of the whole world. You are the light of God. We read that straight away and we think of it, oh, we're the light of God. The Jews are, that's true, the Jews are no longer the light of the world. But when Jesus spoke that, they were. And thank God that they were. Let your goodness shine out. And he was speaking to the Jews before the gospel started coming out from Jerusalem to us. And as you do so, be sure to follow the law that God gave you through Moses. For God's law never changes and I don't intend to try and change it. But remember as you do, it must come from the depths of your heart not in a legalistic way like it is with the scribes and the Pharisees. And that was his introduction. And he took a breath, I guess. What he pardon me, said had come from the depths of his heart. And as he paused, they were all ready to hear what he had to say next. And what he had to say next was, 
really something that um, stopped them in their tracks because he spoke with an authority that went beyond the authority of the religious teachers of the law. In deference to them, they, they expounded the law and gave their carefully considered opinions of what the law was, was getting at. Jesus, though, although he acknowledged that God inside, inspired scriptures and that they were never to change, would quote from the scriptures and says, effectively, this is what the scriptures say, this is what was said. Then he would say, but I say unto you. And, and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, you find the people saying, this man spoke with an incredible authority. And there's the thought was in the mind, I guess, just who is this man? And the people are there. He has made touch with them. He has sort of said, you are very important people. You are the, in a way, passing on the word of God. You're the ones that were selected to do this. And then he starts his teaching. And hopefully technology works. Uh, make sure that it's on. Okay. Is that, is that the... That doesn't... Make sure that... That is not what I put up. That is not the transparency, not the... Ah, that's more like it. <laughs> we were not getting into adultery today, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, okay, that's right. <laughs> okay. And uh, so Jesus starts with the sixth commandment. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, this to the Jews was a, a clear enough statement. Uh, each city or village had its uh, court or its council uh, to try criminal cases and probably civil cases as well. And the number of men who sat on that um, council uh, varied. From a small village, it would be as low as three, to a major city up as high as 23. They had the right to pronounce judgment, and the judgment laid down for murder was very clear. The judgment was execution. Now, when we look at this, we're not talking about the death of someone as a result of uh, someone else's carelessness, and that's not murder. Uh, this is about the premeditated act of murder, and the penalty, according to the law, was well understood. The people were right with it. They knew exactly what he was saying. Now, Jesus didn't deny in any way the rightness or the correctness of the law that he just sort of mentioned the first commandment. Um, but he went on to say quite a few things. Yep, that's on. Okay. I might need to depend on... I'll try once again. I'll depend on yourselves. So he, he went on and said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty etc. before the court. He introduces this anger. And, and what is anger? 
Is anger good? Is anger bad? How, how do you feel? Is it? Do you ever get angry and is it right to be angry? Uh, isn't anger an emotion that God has blessed us with uh, to motivate us to respond to threatening situations? Uh, used unwisely, it can be very dangerous. It can be destructive, but used wisely, anger is valuable. Where you observe injustice, doesn't anger motivate you to do something about that injustice? Where a, a government legislates something that's um, sort of not suitable in the community, or even to um, prevent people's freedom of speech, wouldn't anger motivate you to speak up or do something about it? When Jesus cleansed the temple, wasn't it anger at how the temple was being desecrated that motivated him to do so? If someone was threatening your child, anger would cause you to defend that child even physically if you had to. So anger is not immediately bad. It's there for a purpose and it's there to fulfil good purposes. It has its place. Now that's not what Jesus is talking about. We can see that there's room for proper anger. Nor is he talking about the time when um, you yelled at your son when through carelessness he broke your crystal vase. <laughs> he wasn't talking about that either. There, there's two words for the, in the Greek for the anger of uh, Jesus' day. Uh, one is the word thumos. And that refers to the anger that flares up real quickly. Why did you drop that verse? <laughs> and then, oh well, <laughs> and you realise that, okay, those things happen and it comes down again. That's the word thumos. But he, Jesus used the word orge. And this is the long-lived anger. This is the anger that you brood over. You're angry with someone for whatever reason. You go to bed tonight, you probably can't sleep, you're still angry tomorrow, your blood is boiling, you want to get back at them, but said, oh, but you find that, oh, I don't know if I should. You know that it's wrong to do so. Is anyone here familiar with that? If there's no one here familiar with that, I'm terribly ashamed <laughs> because I am familiar with that situation I am taken to the extreme of course some people might even wish someone to be dead and never carry out the act you can't be thrown into jail for that every now and then you hear about a situation where police came out to a disturbance and they oh what was done oh actually nothing was done but I'm sorry we can't do anything something needed to be done and the Bible is very explicit about uh, anger. Okay. The, um, James writes these words, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And that word 
Ross is the word orge. While you are in a tiz with anger, can you imagine any good deeds coming out from you? It's, it, it, it upsets things completely. The wrath of God does not produce the righteousness of God. And then Paul. Paul says, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And you can see that all of those are shades of an angry heart, can't you? And I've got to tell you, both the word thumos and the word orga are in that list. So it's best if we can even avoid that sudden <laughs> outburst that comes up and flares down and, and be able to even overcome that from the depths of our heart. So Jesus introduces this and says, hey, just watch this anger. And anyone who is, has this deep-seated anger, they're just as guilty as the man who commits murder. He goes on to say, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with a brother shall be guilty before the court. Even though no physical act was carried out, even though no earthly court is likely to condemn this person, Jesus says, according to God's set of values, he is as guilty as a person who actually committed murder. He or she should be subject to the same level of judgment. Now, J Jesus is using illustrations. He's trying to say, hey, this is bad. This is even worse, and this is worse still. So, anger is just as bad is murder. He goes on still further, but uh, before we do, we'll just dwell on that a bit longer. Murder comes always and only from an angry heart. It never comes from a heart that is pure and holy. An angry heart is the real problem that leads to the physical act. So, being a bit personal for a while, what about you? Uh, I I'm looking at myself here as well, and uh, I had to look at myself before I come to preach this morning. <laughs> Is it possible even that someone here this morning continues to hold hurtful anger in their heart? Hurtful feelings. Someone's really hurt you. And maybe, in, in truth, you can say, well, that was justifiable. I'm, it was terrible what happened, but, it, but the problem continues that anger continues to bubble over. It's this continuation of it that Jesus is critical of. I think it's um, probably almost impossible to, to um, not feel aspects of anger, but to dwell on it and let it grow is completely wrong. Jesus has more to say. It's just how strong I press the button, I discovered that. <laughs> he goes on to say, Whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, that's the Greek word raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And in this illustration, Jesus says, If you call someone raka, a fool, a stupid idiot, 
if you regard some, someone with contempt, then you deserve condemnation, not just in the village court, but in the supreme court. He's sort of saying, here, there's a, a bigger sort of level of condemnation here. And this is the haughty, prideful insolence of thinking, I am on a level better than others in the community. Dallas Willard makes this comment. You can be angry with someone without denying their worth. But contempt makes it easier for us to hurt them. And this can be a, an habitual attitude of looking down on others. It makes it easy to hurt them if you look down on them habitually. Uh, you might not even know that you're doing it. Jesus says that contempt is even more worthy of judgment than deep-seated anger. And let's admit, I watched the wedding yesterday and I watched the faces of the hobnobs. <laughs> and I saw someone, some who seemed to be right with it and others I thought, they really don't want to be here. And I wondered if there was some of this contempt even in some of the people at that wedding. And uh, I think sort of some things like that, it's habit. But Jesus doesn't finish there. He, he sort of makes a point of saying, well, if you, if you regard someone with contempt, that, that's even worse. And he goes on a step further. And uh, down towards the bottom of the passage there, he says... Whoever says, you fool, moros, from which we get the word moron, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell, Gehenna. So finally Jesus uses another word. It also means fool, but it also has the meaning of morally repulsive. You might say that that person should be judged worthy of hell. This is contempt taken to its fullest extent a person this person doesn't even have a right to exist it's a malicious put down it's um, treating someone with ridicule and this deserves as Jesus says uh, a judgment he pronounced here that that person is judged worthy to be thrown into Gehenna now don't particularly want to say much about Gehenna, but Jesus covers, talks about Gehenna again a number of times before the end of the um, Sermon on the Mount. And Gehenna has become associated with the eternal punishment of hell, but the word Gehenna initially refers to the valley of the sons of Ben-Hinnom down to the south of Jerusalem, where at the time of King Ahaz... Uh, of Judah, Israelites used to sacrifice children to the Ammonite god Molech. And uh, it was a terrible type of worship. Um, fortunately, after a while, King Josiah destroyed this worship. And I just want to read a brief comment to briefly show what a terrible place it became and why, the, in the eyes of the Jews, uh, it was fearful and a degraded place. 
something that really was frightening. Okay. The Valley of the Sons of Ben-Hinnom, Gehenna, was condemned to receive the offal and refuse and sewage of the city and into which the bodies of malefactors were cast and where to destroy the odour and pestilential influences continual fires were kept burning. Here fire, smoke, worms bred by the corruption and other repulsive features rendered the place a horrible one in the eyes of the Jews. It was considered a suitable place for the bodies of the worst criminals and Jesus had chosen the most disgusting physical judgment that he could think of to emphasize the problem with this last attitude. It's hard to picture eternal hell but it was easy for the Jews to picture the valley of the sons of Ben-Hinnom and to consider the possibility of being thrown in there they, they knew what Jesus was getting at. And by this statement Jesus made it very clear that the sin of murder is not primarily in the physical action but rather it lies in the attitude of heart. And this is a theme that continues as we go through the, the sermon. The crowd didn't need a detailed explanation like I've just given. They knew. <laughs> he was speaking their language. They knew the place. William Barclay in his uh, daily notes summarises uh, this much of the passage in this way he says what Jesus is saying here is this in the old days men condemned murder and truly murder is forever wrong but I tell you that not only are a man's outward actions under judgment this is sort of a paraphrase of what Jesus is saying but his inmost thoughts are also under the scrutiny and judgment of God Long-lasting anger is bad, contemptuous speaking is worse, and the careless or the malicious talk that destroys a man's good name is worst of all. He may never have committed murder, but is a murderer at heart. And uh, I think the um, orator that Jesus was, he would have paused at that point. Uh, at um, this, not. William Barclay wasn't there, of course. <laughs> he would have paused at the, after that statement about um, anger and let people um, think for a while. And I suspect there was a good number who were examining themselves. But putting the physical aspect of murder aside, what else does anger or an angry outburst cause? can possibly think of particular situations. It causes difficulty between friends, doesn't it? It causes difficulties within families. People stop talking to each other. There's this continuous tension that even affects your health. Um, if anger ever occurs in your place, how does it show itself? Does it show itself in yelling and screaming? Or maybe 
some people might be quite pleased and, and able to say, no, not at all. Um, has there ever been a situation in your home where you just stop talking to each other because there's something going on down deep and it takes a while, days or even a week, for something like that to go. Well, that's anger. That's anger. When you stop talking to each other because something's going on and uh, you'd like to hurt them but you're not going to say anything, that's anger. So after talking about anger and talking pretty directly, Jesus naturally flows on to how they should try to address the negative results of that anger. And what Jesus goes on to talk about is a heart response to overcome the problem. A heart response that should flow naturally from one who is walking with God. I went down two instead of one. Got it. No. <laughs> uh, ah, good. <laughs> um, and this is what Jesus continues with. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus uses an illustration from the Jewish Day of Atonement. And he pictures a man uh, bringing his offering, possibly a lamb, or possibly a calf, as a sacrifice to atone for his sin and he brings that calf and he presents it to the priest He's to, he is to place his hands on the head of it and then the priest is to take it and sacrifice it next to the altar pardon me and by placing his hands on the head of it symbolically he's conveying his sin to that animal and it goes in the sacrifice but just as he's about to place his hands on the head of the animal and convey a sin to the animal, he remembers, um, I offended my mate. He's angry with me. And he's aware of the holiness of this ritual that he's about to perform, but he's also aware that he's got this gut-wrenching thing and he's thinking, I'm a hypocrite. And so he leaves the calf there with the priest, goes and finds his mate, um, confesses to him. Maybe it's the other way around, or offers forgiveness to him, and then returns to offer his sacrifice. What if his friend won't have a thing to do with him? He's not responsible for the outcome. He's responsible for the fact that from the depths of his heart he went and endeavoured to sort things out. So he comes back and then he offers his sacrifice.
many years before King David had already realized that worshipping God through sacrifice was worthless if a person's heart was not right with God. And this is what uh, David said. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Does anyone see a contradiction in that passage? There's a glaring contradiction there. David says, you do not delight in sacrifices, but, he goes on to say, you do delight in a broken and a contrite heart. You delight in the right sacrifice, is what David has, has recognised. And the sacrifice of the beasts, the animals and so on, yeah, that was a, a ritual. But behind that ritual was the attitude of the heart, and David recognised it. If I come to make a sacrifice, then really the real sacrifice is this broken spirit and this broken and contrite heart. Jesus finishes teaching with an illustration of men going to court to set out a business dispute or a civil dispute. And he says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And the people would have known what he was getting at. He was talking about the, the debtor's prison. They could be thrown into prison for failure to uh, pay a debt. And they all knew how important it was to sort out this civil dispute before they got before the judge because once you got before the judge there was no option of trying to make it more lenient. Uh, you had problems of uh, being thrown into jail. So they knew, hey, sort it out before you get before the judge. Can you see what Jesus is getting at here? If that's what you do with a civil dispute in this secular world, when you've got a sort of a dispute with God, you've got sin on your heart, and you want to come to worship, endeavour to sort that out before you do. Go and see your brother because you're not dealing with a judge of a civil court. You're dealing with the, the judge who judges spirits, judges the hearts of mankind. So do it before you come to worship. Well, when we look at this then, like I said, that was Jesus talking to the Jews, the ones to whom we owe a great uh, gratitude because they were the light on the hill through which we've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but animal sacrifice has gone. But apart from that, 
everything that Jesus says applies just as much to you and to me as it did to those who were sitting in front of him. The sacrifice for our sin, the lamb that had to be sacrificed for our sin, has al the sacrifice has already been made on the cross of Calvary. When we come to worship, we do not come bringing a lamb as a sacrifice. We come to celebrate a sacrifice that has already been made on our behalf. It's as though we have placed our hands on that sacrifice before it was sacrificed. You'll be familiar with this passage, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when we come to worship as Christians, we're certainly not bringing... We certainly do not bring an animal sacrifice but what sacrifice should we be bringing? The same sacrifice that David realised. A broken and a contrite heart, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. As we stand in awe of the majesty and mercy of our Saviour, that's what we should have. We come each Lord's Day and we bow in humble remembrance of the sacrifice that has been made on our behalf as we share in the Lord's Supper, as we already have today. We celebrate God's blessing by remembering Jesus' body as we take the bread and remembering Jesus' blood as we share in the cup. But like that man in Jesus' illustration, what about that angry outburst during the week? What about the person you offended who is still angry with you? Do we just go straight ahead and share in the emblems of forgiveness or pretend and pretend that that thing never happened during the week? Uh, do we confess our sin before Jesus and then ignore the Holy Spirit when he quietly says, well, what are you doing about it? Wouldn't it be interesting if God spoke loudly? If I come to church to worship on a Sunday, during the week I've really, really messed up. And I pray to the Lord, Lord, forgive me for the, this last week. And there's many things that I can simply bring to him and, and straight away I know I'm forgiven. And yeah, forgive me, Lord, for um, my outburst against John. And, um, and then booming through the church, God says, how does John feel about it? I have to say, oh, he's still angry at me. And then God says, what are you doing about it? 
I'd run out of church. <laughs> I wouldn't stop running until I'd caught up with John and then I'd come back. So this is what Jesus is about in what we've read today. Um, indeed, it's the message right through the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just here. It's, it travels right through the Sermon on the Mount. Although God's law condemns wicked actions such as murder, Jesus goes on to say it's not the wicked actions that are the problem. Rather, it is the wicked heart behind the actions. Address the wicked heart and you will remove the wicked actions. Allow a pure heart to develop and you will become a peacemaker. And in the Beatitudes... Jesus says peacemakers are blessed <laughs> and that's the desire that's God's desire for you and me that's the Lord's desire that having come to Christ we grow in grace and purity of heart so that attitudes of anger not just anger but other sinful thoughts become a thing of the past and not only will we bring a sacrifice of a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart but we'll also bring because of a clean heart, a sacrifice of praise. I'd just like to close with this passage from Hebrews. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such, with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And may you have a blessed week. And as you come to share in worship next week and the Lord's Supper, may you have considered the things that you need to attend to before you come. Thank you.